Good morning. In uh, 1998, Lori and I had a trip of a lifetime. We got to go to Israel and then on to Greece and kind of walk through some of the very places where the Bible takes us. And there was an unexpected highlight for us when we went to Israel. And it came at this place right here, the Arbel Cliffs overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And you can't really see it, but off to the north here on the, along the edge of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. It's Jesus' earthly headquarters. And what was so remarkable about this unexpected highlight was the lecture that we received from one of my old profs at Trinity Seminary, who uh, just had us up there as a group and looking out over the vista with the Golan Heights off to the, to the east there. Um, we, we just heard all about these fascinating things that had to do with things I never really think about a lot of times, like geology and uh, geography, and how that all shaped the history of this particular place and about the time when Jesus walked the earth. One of the things he pointed out was this Arabian desert. You can see it. Well, let me just show you where we were. We were kind of up in here, okay? And uh, the Arabian desert is this huge mass here that really affected how the trade routes went. So you remember back in Genesis, we met... Abraham, who lived down here amongst the Chaldeans in Ur. And when he got over here to the promised land where God was leading, remember, he didn't go through the desert. It really is impassable. The way you traveled was up and over this fertile crescent. That was the trade route. That was the route where all the military um, armies swept down and into Egypt and down through Palestine. So people like you know, Sennacherib that we talked about last week in 721 when he came and whisked off the 10 northern tribes. And then in 605, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in. And then in the early 4th century, you've got Alexander the Great, right? And the Greeks now conquer the Persians. And that's the Greek empire that's spreading. And he's come through there. And then in 63 BC, Pompey comes through. The, the Romans now are in control. And Palestine, the promised land, is now under Roman rule. And, and he made this fascinating observation of how here you had guys like an Alexander the Great, this mighty conquering warrior who comes down. He's a man, but he claims to be a god. And he goes right through this part of the world, Capernaum and the surrounding area, because that's the way you got down to Egypt. That's the way you get into the promised land. He claims to be a god. But in this very town of Capernaum, there's a whole different history about the Son of God who comes as a man, robed in human flesh. He wasn't born in a palace. Scriptures say he was born in a feeding trough. He was born outside in a stable with the animals because there wasn't any place for this baby, the Son of God, to be born. There wasn't any great fanfare when he came to this earth. No, it it wasn't like that at all. Just a few shepherds in the foothills outside of Bethlehem that show up to share the joy of Joseph and Mary. You know, he didn't ride a stallion. There wasn't a mighty army. All we have is a a band of least likely, these, these followers, fishermen and tax collectors, that follow him. And to be sure, 
They turned the world upside down, but it didn't look like anything spectacular. You think about the paradox as they go on. He had a forerunner, John the Baptist. He wasn't blowing a trumpet. He wasn't in the major cities of the day. He was out in the countryside, in the wilderness. And what he was doing is he was preparing people for this king, as saying, you need to get your hearts ready for this king because his kingdom's not about this world. It's about your hearts and his rule in your hearts. And so you need to repent. You need to get baptized. And he had a lot of hard things to say to the religious leaders who didn't think they needed any heart change. He said, you're a bunch of snakes. And God's judgment's coming. Be ready. The, the paradoxes continue as you think about not only Jesus' kingdom not being of this world, but this Messiah, this promised Savior, whom they're waiting for. And what they're looking for right now in the history of God's people is somebody who will free us from these lousy Romans. Someone who will break the chains, the bondage, free us. And Jesus comes to say, hey, I'm not here to conquer the Romans. My mission's about something totally different. I'm here to conquer sin and death and the enemy. And so this morning we come to the Gospels. We're actually now in the New Testament. Can you believe it? We, we turn the pages from the prophets, and we're here in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and it is good news. Now, you remember the prophets last week. There, there are these, these people that are these men that are, are warning people. They're, they're telling people, hey, he's coming. He's coming. It, it kind of reminds me of those signs that we see all around Madison right now. Have you seen them? Coming soon. See, I, I just got here, so you probably know what this sign's about. I have no clue what this is about. Someone told me I think it's a casino. I didn't know. Maybe it is. I thought it was a department. I don't know what it is, but it's coming soon to Madison, right? Well, the prophets are saying he's coming soon. The Messiah, he's coming soon. And remember their message. Their message was, number one, hey, you've broken the covenant. They pointed out the people's sin. They also held out hope, though, didn't they? If you turn back to God, there's hope for you. But if you don't, there's certain judgment. They talked about that new covenant, remember? God said, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that actually wants to do my will and has the capacity to do it because it'll beat for me and live for me. And so these prophets and the people with them have been looking for Messiah. It's been 400 years since the Old Testament has been closed, written, finished, 400 years. And now the Gospels open up, and we move from Jesus is coming to Jesus has come, he's here. And what you find out when you start reading the Gospels is most of the people missed him. Most of the people missed him. I've, I've wondered some about if I, if I had lived back then, what have I missed him? I, mean, I try and put myself in categories of people. So religious leader, that's who I am. Person of means and wealth, that's who I am. When I read the Gospels, I find out most of those people completely missed Jesus. I, I think of my girls when they visited Grandma and Grandpa in Switzerland. My folks would spend the summers there. My dad's little village is nestled on the French-Swiss border. And one of the summers that they were over there visiting Grandma and Grandpa... Uh, the Tour de France was coming right near their area. So my dad said, hey, girls, you want to go see Lance? Yeah, let's go see Lance Armstrong. 
So they drive out to the place. They're somewhere along the stage. And what you do is you just camp out there waiting for the tour to pass by. And you know how it is. Sometimes in the tour, you've got them spread out over kilometers. But sometimes it's just this massive, I think they call it the peloton, right? This big group of bike riders. Well, no warning, waiting all day. And then all of a sudden, it's not a string of riders. It's the peloton. And it goes whoosh, just like that. And, and they're looking at each other going, where's the yellow? Where's the where's left? And it's gone. <laughs> Looking for him, and they missed him. I wonder if anybody's been looking for Jesus today has completely missed him. Maybe you don't even know you're looking for Jesus. Do you know you're looking for something? There is just something missing in your life. Well, we got good news. We got Jesus here today. The Gospels are written so we don't miss them. You think about the people who missed him. It begins with his family. You know his family's missed him because he's out there preaching, and his family comes, and they, they want to take him home. They think he's disturbed. I mean mentally disturbed. They think he's just lost it. He's off his rocker. He's wacko. We need to get the straight jacket and bring him home and give this guy some sedatives. His family missed him early on in his ministry. Not only his family, his neighbors. I mean, he grew up in Nazareth, right? He's preaching in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, and these guys go, hey, we know who you are. You're the carpenter. Don't kid us. We, we know who your mother is. It's Mary. We know your brothers. We know your sisters. So when you start preaching in the, in the synagogue that you're the Messiah, saying that you're the one that Isaiah the prophet promised, we don't buy it. In fact, when he said that, that today these scriptures have been fulfilled and you're hearing. They were so incensed because they knew who he was that they took him to the edge of the cliff in Nazareth with the intent to push him off and kill him. They missed him right in his own hometown. There's another group that really missed him. And these are the guys that shouldn't have missed him because these are the guys that were teaching about him. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. They completely missed him. They were sure they knew who he wasn't. You are not the Messiah. They said that you're from the devil himself. And they were so incensed at his claim to be the Messiah that they literally have him killed. But there's some others that miss him too. His own followers, his disciples. To be sure, when you read the Gospels, you find out, that these guys are confused a lot of times. Sounds just like me. They just don't get it. And then there's Judas, who apparently never got it. Completely missed him. But we come to the Gospels this morning, and the Gospels are written so that we wouldn't miss Jesus. And what do we have in the Gospels? We've got four Gospels. And this word gospel means good news. That's what the word means, gospel. Good news. It's the good news about God's love for us in sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place for our sins. And it's the good news of how he did pay not only for our sins, but rise from the dead, showing us that he is who he said he is. And so you've got these four gospels. Matthew. Matthew was one of the disciples. He was the tax collector that Jesus met in Capernaum and said, Matthew. Follow me, Levi. You've got Mark. Mark is probably John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the traveling companion of Barnabas and Paul on that first missionary journey. 
close friend with a disciple named Peter. You've got Luke, Dr. Luke, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, the one who gives us the two volumes of Luke and Acts. And you've got John, Jesus' disciple, his closest friend, the one who was referred to as the beloved disciple. These men give us four portraits. I wouldn't call them biographies. Much better to think of them as portraits. Paintings of the same subject, but taking on a little different angle. Together, we have everything that God wants us to have to see the beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. These gospels were written some 30 to 60 years after Jesus walked this earth, after he was crucified and risen from the dead. Mark's gospel is probably the first gospel written in the early 60s. John, probably the last gospel in the 90s. And Luke and Matthew, somewhere in between. And when Jesus comes, Mark tells us in chapter 1, page 707, why he came. He came preaching this good news. And so we read in verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. That's the word gospel. Proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And when you turn over to Paul's opening remarks to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 1, page 795. I encourage you to just turn there in your Bibles. Romans chapter 1, page 795. Paul makes it clear that this good news is, first of all, good news about God and that it's not new good news. It's good news that's actually rooted way back in the Old Testament and that this good news primarily focuses on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who's fully man and fully God. So look at Romans 1. Paul opens up his letter with these words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so what we get in the gospels is an understanding that this Jesus born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, that he is the promised Savior that God's been talking about ever since Genesis 3.15. And, and it helps us understand the relationship between the two parts of our Bible, the Old Testament and the New. We, we put it in real simple terms like Old Testament, Jesus is coming. New Testament, Jesus has come. You could think about it as promises made, the Old Testament, promises kept, the New Testament. And so the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are helping us see throughout their records that Jesus is that one. So let me give you some examples of that from the Gospels. These are written in the study questions that you have on the insert this morning, but just follow along. We know that he will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3 promises that. And Hebrews 2.14 says that's exactly what Jesus did. 
We know he's the promised descendant of Abraham who brings blessing to all the nations. And Acts 3.25 says that's exactly what Jesus did. He's David's son, the eternal king. Revelations 19 and 22 say that's exactly who Jesus is. Born of a virgin, Matthew 1. Born in Bethlehem, Matthew 2. He is the temple, the dwelling place of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, now remember this about the temple. The temple was where God lived. The temple was the place where the priests would offer sacrifices for sin so that God could live with his people who weren't holy, even though God was completely holy. And Jesus says to the religious leaders that he's the temple, that the temple teaching is all fulfilled in him. So he says in John 2, Jesus answering them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jewish leaders replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it up, build it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of, John says, was his body. Jesus is the temple, the dwelling place of God. It's gone from a place to the person of God's son. He is the suffering servant that we looked at last week in Isaiah 53, whose hands and feet would be pierced on a Roman cross. The gospels make that clear. John 20, 27, specifically. He was crucified for our sins, as the scripture said. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He rose from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, again, raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so, The Gospels are helping us understand that Jesus is the one that the prophets were talking about back there. He is the promised Savior that we've been waiting for. And when you get to the Gospel, for example, let's use Mark's this morning. There's just no way avoiding who Jesus is. So when Mark opens his Gospel, turn back to to the first chapter, verse 1 of Mark's Gospel. What does Mark say as he opens it up? The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Who is he? The Son of God. We'll keep going. Look down at verses 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Here we have it from God himself, that Jesus is his son. We go on and we find out in chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, that even the demons recognize him as a son of God. Just then a man in their synagogues who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Even the demons knew who Jesus was. The disciples knew it. In in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Hey, guys, who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, who's been beheaded by this time. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked Who do you say I am? And Peter answered magnificently, You are the Christ. You're the anointed king. 
the promised Savior, God's eternal Son. Well, Jesus himself acknowledges that that's who he is. In Mark chapter 14, we read about his trial before the religious leaders in the early hours of that Friday morning. And the high priest asked him in verse 61, Are you the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God? And what does Jesus say? I am, said Jesus. And they were so incensed when they heard that. The high priest tore his clothes. He says, what more do we need to convict him of claiming the attributes of God? He's committed blasphemy. He deserves to die. At his death in Mark chapter 15, someone else understood who he was, a very unlikely person. We read this in verse 37 of chapter 15. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, here's what he said. Surely, this man was the Son of God. Everybody recognizes who Jesus is. And let me just say something about that curtain. It's a great little teaching moment. I want us to to understand. The Bible, a lot of it is written in narrative form. It's telling a story. And when it tells a story, there's so many things it can't tell us, doesn't have time for. So when it tells us things like, and the curtain was torn from top to bottom, stop and go, what's important about that? Why Why did he write that? Well, let me just walk you through that curtain quick. The curtain separated the holy place where sacrifices were offered every day from the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God where sacrifices were only offered one time a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. That was such a scary place for the priest to go that they literally sewed bells into the hems of their robe so that they could hear him moving. They tied a rope around his waist so that if they stopped to hear the bells and knowing perhaps that he died in the presence of God, they could literally pull them out of the holy holies without getting in there themselves and dying. And when did that curtain tear? What did Mark say? After he breathed his last. This is this huge object lesson that God is doing. He says, once Jesus died in our place for our sins, the way into the holy of holies is no longer there Jesus is right when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's been made open. And and he said it was ripped from where? Top to bottom. Is that just a passing comment? Or is that important? It's important. The significance of that is God did it. It's way up there, 40 feet high. It's going to be really hard to do it from up there without anything to support us. But God, from top to bottom, opened it up so everybody understood what Jesus had done on the cross. But we're not here to talk about curtains. We're talking about the centurion, right? And about all these people, from the demons to Jesus himself to God the Father who recognize who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. The gospel say, don't miss that. Don't miss that. And don't miss what he did. What he came to do. 
He came preaching. We know that from chapter 1. We already looked at preaching the good news of the kingdom. He came preaching. And he came doing miracles. And the connection of the miracles with his preaching was this. They authenticated the messenger and his message. So you have this whole scenario in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. You've got the guy, remember, the paralytic who can't walk. His buddies bring him in. They lower him through the roof. What a great day that would have been. And what does Jesus say to this man who is just hoping to walk? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And you can imagine that guy must have been thinking, well, that's great, but I was kind of hoping for new legs. But the religious leaders were incensed when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven for they knew that no one can forgive sins but who? God. And then Jesus says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your pallet and walk. You see how the miracles work? They authenticate the messenger and his message. But here's something else the miracles do. Remember we said back in Genesis 3 when God starts making these promises to reverse the effects of the fall? What Jesus is doing in the miracles is showing us little glimpses of the kingdom of God breaking out right here on this earth of showing us what it's going to look like in heaven when his perfect rule is established over all things and God's people are living under God's rule in his place. And the miracles when the blind see and the lame walk and the sins are forgiven and the demons are defeated and death is destroyed destroyed. They're pictures of the reversing effects of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? He came to preach, and he came to teach, and he came to call people to a response. You got to repent. You got to be baptized. He came to call people to himself. Those fishermen, he said, come on, follow me, leave your nets behind. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He came to preach. He came to teach. He did miracles. He called people to repentance. And who responded? The people that knew their need. They're the people who responded. The lepers, the lame, the blind, the woman caught in adultery, the thief on the cross. All people that were very aware of their need. Maybe they didn't know it when they first met Jesus, but by the time they finished the conversation like Nicodemus, they knew their need. Well, Jesus not only preached and called people to himself, but he died. In fact, that was his mission. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, if you could say, what was Jesus' mission in a sentence? Here it was. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, that is my mission, not to come as his king and be pampered by servants. I'm coming to serve. The kind of service I'm going to offer is a ransom, and that ransom is going to free you, free many That's why I have come. And the scriptures make it clear that he not only died for our sins to bring us to God, but he rose from the dead. Each of the gospels make it clear that it's not a lie. The disciples didn't steal his body. They wouldn't die themselves for a hoax. He really did rise from the dead. He was seen by hundreds. He ascended into heaven. He is alive. And just as people who are aware of their needs responded to him, there are many who didn't. You think of the rich young ruler. He loved his riches more than he loved Christ. You think of Pilate, who knew that he was innocent. He says so. I know this man has done no wrong. But he loved his position, and he loved 
the favor of men more than their disfavor. The text tells us he was afraid of what they would think. He didn't follow Christ. The religious leaders, they loved their position. They loved the traditions that they had added to the scriptures. They loved their good standing before God, so they thought. So they didn't think they needed Christ either. They missed him. They missed him. They missed him. Jesus makes it clear in Luke chapter 5 that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And here's what I'd say, is that a lot of times in life, we need a doctor and we don't even know it. I I first learned that in 1989. I was taking a group of students to France on a missions trip. And the whole month before the trip left, I was sick. I didn't didn't know what it was. I just kind of figured, I've got a little nervous stomach, a little colitis, and my medicine maybe is out of date. It's just not working very well. So as we're getting closer, Lori's getting a little more concerned. And finally, one night, I have a bad attack. I almost go to the emergency room. She says, you've got to go see a doc. So I go to a doctor the next day. He says, you know what? I think you've got an appendix problem. I'm thinking, you're kidding. I just thought it was a nervous stomach. Maybe it's my appendix. That was a dumb diagnosis I was giving myself. So he says, you know what? You've got you to get, get the old system cleaned out today. See me tomorrow. I'll take some pictures. Find out for sure. He says, if you've got any more problems, any more real chronic attacks tonight, just come on in. Just check in. Well, that night, sure enough, another attack. I said, Lori, take me to the hospital, 2 in the morning. I go see a doctor, this uh, resident there in the, in the emergency room, and he checks me over. He says, Mr. Meifer, one thing I can tell you for sure is you don't have an appendix problem. If I were you, I'd just go home to bed. I said, hey, doc, you know what? Um, I think I'm just going to stay here. I got a test in a few hours. And next time I saw that doctor, I'm on a gurney going into the operating room. He says, what, what, what's, what's wrong? I said, it's my appendix. I said, wow, you're kidding. No. Next time somebody walked out of the surgery, it was two and a half hours later, and they walked into the waiting room where my wife was, and they said, Mrs. Myfair, I don't think this is what they teach you in nursing school. Some of you nurses clarify this, but she said, Mrs. Myfair, you almost had your marital status changed. I needed a doctor, and I didn't know. You know, your appendix is about as big as your little finger, right? It didn't burst. It, it had a slow leak. It had a perforation. And it's been festering for that last month when I wasn't feeling good. It's now the size of a baseball. My intestines have walled around it. They had to cut out four feet of my intestines, and I almost died. And I had no clue. Sometimes you need a doctor, and you don't even know it. And the Bible says God is the great physician. And some of us, maybe until today, didn't even know we needed his doctoring care over our hearts. Well, my challenge is, for some of you that are in that situation, is is this week, you read the Gospels, and you ask God to show you your need. And you ask God to show you the remedy of his Son, and what he did for you, and who he claimed to be. And you ask God that if it's true, that you would give me faith, God, to believe that. That's my challenge for you that are still investigating the claims of Christ. How do we want to bring this home then? Connect the dots. Make the connections that the Bible makes that Jesus is the promised Savior. Trust in him alone. Believe that Jesus is 
the Christ, the Son of God, the promised Savior who died for your sins and in your place and rose from the dead. And let me just say, this is a stumbling point and yet a clear point in the Gospels that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And we live in this pluralistic day that celebrates diversity and this pluralistic society that says we celebrate the fact that there are many ways to God. And Jesus says, that's not how it is. You may have that, but you can't join me in that camp because I'm exclusive. And if you've heard that, maybe that is just one of the biggest stumbling blocks for you embracing Christ and Christianity because it smacks as arrogant. How could it be? And what about the other people that are out there that are good people? Friends, the Bible is clear. We've got a problem. And Jesus is the only answer. And here's how I thought about it this week. Some of you know that my wife, Lori, was diagnosed with breast cancer four years ago this December. So I know what it's like to be in a doctor's office when they use the word cancer and when they go through the protocols and they tell you about life expectancy. I understand that. So imagine this week. You find out that you have a rare disease that is fatal. You're going to die. And you just get on that internet and you're talking to your doctor. You find out there is somebody who can treat this. You go see that doctor and you start talking about this disease and he tells you about it. He tells you about what he's been doing to treat it. And you ask the all-important question, so what are, the, what are my chances? He said, if you follow my protocol, 100% cure rate. You're going, you're kidding. 100% cure rate if I take this protocol? Absolutely. What if I don't? 100% fatality. Whew. Okay, let me ask you this. Are there any other options? no other options I I guarantee you right then when your heart's beating you're not going to get in that doctor's face you're not going to leave that hospital or that doctor's office mad going why isn't there four other choices for me you won't say that you would walk out going God I am so thankful that somebody knows the cure trust in Christ alone he is the cure He is the promised Savior. It's not about our good works. It's not about any other proclaimed Savior. It's Jesus. I say that on the authority of God's Word. And then if you are trusting in Jesus, then you pick up your cross because it's cross time now. We get to work following Him. We move forward in ongoing repentance and faith and we keep going making disciples, letting people know about Jesus in how we live our life and what we say. So, my prayer for you is that you will know this good news and that you'll leave here this morning knowing this is good news for me. Let's pray. Lord, if all we had is the beauty of your creation, we'd never, we'd never come to the understanding that we have in your word. And we bless you, Jesus, for how you are beautifully portrayed here in the Gospels. We bless you for your teaching and your preaching, your miracles, your perfect life, your substitutionary death on the cross, and your powerful resurrection. This is the good news. May it be good for each one who's here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Well, we have a treat this morning to hear from one of the members of our family here at Door Creek, Roger Beaver, who's going to remind us that, you know, our Savior's alive. He continues to confront people and meet people and change people's lives. So Roger Beaver is going to come right now and share his story of God's grace. Roger, thanks for sharing it this morning.